Hello, my name is Mark Searby and I'm a film critic, broadcaster and author of Al Pacino, The Movies Behind the Man. Thanks for clicking play on episode 10 of All About Al, the Pacino podcast. One of the more underseen films in Al Pacino's filmography is Scarecrow. Made in 1973, directed by Jerry Schatzberg and starring Gene Hackman and Al Pacino, it's a comedy film about two opposites attract guys who go on a road trip together. Gene Hackman plays Max, an ex-con on his way to Pittsburgh to open up a deluxe car wash. Along the way, he meets Lion, played by Al Pacino, who is trekking to Detroit to meet the child he's never seen. The film won the prestigious Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival. Its North American box office was slightly over $4 million, which isn't bad considering the film cost under a million dollars to make. And Gene Hackman has always rated it as his favourite film. To discuss Scarecrow, I spoke to its writer Gary Michael White over the phone. Originally a playwright who went on to write for films and TV shows such as Sky Riders, Double Dare and Midnight Caller. White talks about the influences for writing Scarecrow, why the film was cut by the studio and how Pacino understood the nuances of his character. So here it is, All About Al, the Pacino podcast, episode 10 with writer Gary Michael White on Scarecrow. Am I right in thinking this was actually based on when you hitchhiked from California to Pennsylvania? It is, yes. Uh, I had done quite a bit of that. Um, after I graduated from college, I was given a scholarship to the Art Institute of Chicago, and I lived in Southern California, and I had no money. So I uh, hitchhiked to Pennsylvania, and I worked in summer stock. I, I don't know if you understand that term in Britain. It's uh, what they call the straw hat circuit. It's it's professional theater, but it's uh, very regional. You learn your craft that way. And then I did a summer of that. Then I went to Chicago, and in Chicago, I met a guy who became the model for the character that Gene Hackman plays. So I combined it many years later five years at least later, I combined those events <clears throat> into the story that I was writing. So how long did it take you to flesh it all out? I was just getting my start in the business. I went to the playwrights unit at UCLA, which is in Los Angeles, and uh, while I was there, I wrote a play, which I entered <clears throat> into the Samuel Goldwyn contest, and it won second prize. And as a result of that, I got a Hollywood agent. And that put me to work with a professional director and producer at United Artists. And I wrote my first screenplay professionally there with, under his tutelage. And when that assignment was finished, uh, I was without work, but I had a little bit of money. And I sat down and I thought about what I wanted to write without a director telling me what he wanted. And I had a friend in college who was a very funny fellow, and he was Italian. And I modeled a character on him, 
And I was very much taken with the theme of a man who is so afraid of the world that he keeps it at arm's length by making it laugh. I thought that is a really interesting behavioral trait to give to a character. So I began to write this character, who ends up uh, as the character of Lion by Pacino. And I had to think about what it was he was so afraid of. And I recently had a child. The baby was just months old. And I thought, what if I hadn't been around for the birth of this child? And now I had to face his mother. And I thought that would be a pretty frightening thing to have been cowardly and now have to come back and face it. And I combined that fear with my friend's ability to make people laugh. And I got a pretty good feeling for that character. And then I said, well, we need to have something to balance this character against. So I thought of a man who was utterly fearless as his complete opposite. And that became the character of Max, which is played by Jim Hackman. Together, they are opposites. One is afraid of the world and is in danger because of that. And the other is fearless, and he's in danger because of that. And then with those two characters set in my head, I began to work on the plot. You complete the screenplay. My research tells me that United Artists purchased it straight away. No, my agent sent it out to everybody, and they all said no. It was rejected by everybody in the town of Hollywood. Um, Somehow, and this is where I cannot help you, a friend of mine, an actor named Anthony Zerdi, loved the character, and he really wanted to play Max. And there was a young comedian at the time named David Steinberg, and he showed the script to David Steinberg, and Steinberg said, I would love to play the other character. And so I told Anthony, you have my permission to shop it around. It's been turned down by the studios. Let's see if we can get it made as an independent production. And he began that search, and somehow that led to Al Pacino's getting his hands on the script. I don't know how that happened. And when he expressed interest in playing that character, just before The Godfather was about to be released, and Panic and Needle Park had already been released, United Artists said, well, we'll be willing to make this movie under those terms. And that's when it got sold. My understanding is it got to Pacino's manager, Marty Bregman, but I don't know how it got there, and neither do you, is what you're saying. Exactly. That's the way it often happens in the film business. A script floats around, is read by everybody. Almost everybody says, oh, it's not for me, or whatever reason, until somebody says, aha. I mean, the same thing happened with The Graduate, before Lawrence Turman finally said, I, I can find a way to make this. I know Martin Bregman, or I did know him, but I never asked him how he found, how he got a hold of the script. But then United Artists said no to it even after they bought it. <laughs> this is a, a summation of the frustration of filmmaking. Is this at a point when Pacino has already said yes? To my knowledge, yes. I thought he had, and, and still United Artists was afraid of it. But once again, The Godfather hadn't yet been released, which changed everything. And then once The Godfather comes out, suddenly it goes into a quick production. Well, it, 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 it gets bought by Warner Brothers from United Artists. 
and you understand I have completely lost control of it at this point. When you sell something, you have sold it. It's no longer yours. So Warner Brothers buys the script from United Artists. As far as I'm concerned, at that point, Warner Brothers gives it to Chinak, who says yes, and then the machine restarts in motion. And are you completely away from this now that it's in the Hollywood machine? Well, this is where it gets interesting. There was a producer at Warner Brothers who was assigned to um, undertake the task of producing the film. He called me into his office and said, let's talk about the rewrite. And I said, okay. And his concept for the rewrite was really disastrous idea. He wanted Lion to be a thief who was all the time planning to rob Max of his money and all kinds of horrible ideas. And I said, you know, I can't abide this. And he said, well, then we'll have to get somebody else to do the rewrite. And I guess you can, you can imagine what I felt about that. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I guess you will, because I can't do that to my characters. Then this man, and I won't name him for the moment. Oh, why not? His name is Mark Waddell. He flew to Boston, where Al Pacino was starring in a play with Richard III. And he met with Al Pacino, and he told him, I have great news for you. We're going to do a rewrite, and here's what your character is going to be like. And Al Pacino was very circumspect and didn't say anything. But by the time Mark Riddell got off the airplane in Los Angeles, he was fired from the project. <laughs> Al Pacino had put an end to that. Now, that didn't stop the mischief. Behind that, Pacino's back, all kinds of writers were brought in to do fixes and this and that and this and that. Some of them, I will admit, made it into the final script, into the shooting script. And some of them were, were, were very good notions, very good ideas. But Al said, I want Gary's script, basically, as it was written. And that's eventually what was done. They said, since we've lost the producer and director we had, thanks to you, who do you suggest? And he said, I suggest Jerry Schatzberg, who directed me in Panic and Needle Park. And they said, okay. And Jerry Schatzberg was then brought onto the project. I met with Jerry and Tommy Shaw, the production staff um, producer, and I got in a car and we drove the entire distance that Max and Lion hitchhiked from Los Angeles all the way to Detroit. And Jerry took many, many notes the whole time we drove. And I was there to answer questions as they occurred to Jerry. And we got along fine. Everybody was excited and pleased then in Detroit, everybody split up and went back to work, back to Hollywood. But I don't know if you know this, prior to the beginning of shooting, Al Pacino and Gene Hackman got into costume and started off in Bakersfield and hitchhiked together north through California up to San Francisco. Had you come across that in your research yet? I was aware of this, and somebody still noticed them, didn't they, even though they were in shabby clothes? Yes, well, you know, actors. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, Al called, because he, he, was, he was bubbling with ideas about the character. And I was at home, and I got this call, and it was from him. And he said, Gene is taking a nap, because the character of Max, whenever he's upset and gets into a fight, he always has to take a nap after that and recover. And for whatever reason, Mr. Hackman decided he was going to take a nap. And Al was thinking about the character of Lion, and he said, I'm calling you because I've had this idea 
that maybe Lion carries this portable radio around all the time, and it's stuck to his ear. He's always listening to it, and it keeps the world away from him because he, he's listening to the radio. And I, yeah, once again, I was being very careful. I said, that idea really doesn't work out because the whole point of Lion is that he's like Rip Van Winkle. He's been elsewhere. He's been at, on the ocean. He's been traveling. He has been completely cut off from his world. And that's because he's afraid of that world. And that world has really got its teeth bared and waiting for him. And he cannot be in any way aware of that. I said, so the more he's listening to the radio, the more plugged in he would be to current events. And he said, say no more, you're absolutely right. He says, I've got it. He said, I'm going to forget that idea completely. And that was um, one of my conversations with Al Pacino. And he also said, by the way, I was recognized and, and Gene wasn't, <laughs> which is another uh, actor aside. <laughs> Actors, you've got to know, I adore them, but boy, there's nobody on earth like them. I wanted to ask you about, um, so they start filming in the fall of 1972. Did you go to set at any point? Yeah, I, I've been on other films that I've written. And the director didn't want me anywhere near. That's often the case with directors. They don't want the screenwriter talking to the actors. They want to be in charge of everything the actor hears and interprets. And the, and the and director's job is enormously difficult. They are running literally in front of a train. They've got the studio looking at dailies. They've got the accountant saying you're running over budget. They've got the publicity people saying the actor got drunk last night and made a fool of himself. It, it's a nightmare. And they don't need a writer saying, well, really, I had a different idea about the character. It, it, it's way too late for that by the time they're shooting. And so most directors don't want you around. But Jerry said, both these actors, they're fond of you. They trust you. If, it's, if you want to be on the set very infrequently, then I, I welcome you to, to do that. And basically, I wanted to get as far away from the whole thing, quite frankly, as I could. So my wife and I planned a trip to Ireland, and we spent 30 days driving around Ireland. And I was thinking about a new story that I was working on. And I wanted to be far away from phone calls or publicity or anything involving Daircrow. But I did stop by Denver when they were shooting there. And I did talk with Gene Hackman especially. Al Pacino was injured. Uh, he was walking on a railroad track and he twisted his ankle, which is no big deal, but because he was a movie star, it was a big deal. They put him in a hospital and they did you know, all kinds of nonsense. And he was very much working as a method actor. I'm sure you know what that means. And he was in character a lot. And he didn't want to do much talking. He was developing the character from the interior point of view. Gene Hackman, who works in a very different manner, was perfectly happy to discuss technical issues. But I didn't have much to say. They, it was Jerry was in charge. He had two of the best actors in the world as far as I was concerned. What was I going to say to anybody, really? I was nobody. And I tried to make that clear that I didn't really want to butt in at all. And so after having made my appearance and been friendly with everybody, and especially with Eileen Brennan, who was absolutely wonderful 
and reassured me. I was just, a, you know, I was pretty much a kid, and this was a huge thing in my life. And she could see that I was very nervous and worried, and she put me at my ease. And she was just a wonderful, wonderful woman and a wonderful actress. And then I got out of Denver, and that was the last I had to do with anything on, on the set. Next thing I knew was when I was seeing a rough cut with Jerry in the screening room. I just want to go back to something you mentioned there, Gary, which is you said Hackman and Pacino were the two best actors in the world and you were really pleased they were in. And that's the same that Jerry Schatzberg said as well. You know, they couldn't have been more right for the picture, but they clashed all the way through that film. They just didn't get on, which I find incredible after watching the movie because they've got such chemistry together. Were you aware of that? I, no, I was not aware of it at all. Once again, I was in Ireland and uh, had nothing to do with it. But I can understand why that would be. When an actor is approaching a character from the interior, that actor does not really want to talk about it. They want to perform it. And I think that Gene Hackman, who had just won his Academy Award for The French Connection, had more clout, as, as I would have to put it, than Al did. But he probably exercised that leverage, and Al would have resented it, especially if it got in the way of his interpretation or his interior work. That's the only reason I could tell you why it would make sense to me that they clashed, because in personal terms, I think they're both very reasonable, very intelligent people who are not crazy basket cases like other actors that I've met. They were centered and ready to do the day's work all the time. Then we push forward. You just mentioned it there as well, Gary, is that the, the next time you saw anything was when you were watching a cut of the movie with Jerry. Now, my understanding is this is where it gets quite nasty with Warners making cuts. Is that right? Yes. The movie business is about money. and There's, there's, no, there's no mystery to that. And Warner Brothers decided we've got these two big actors, if we can get eight screenings a day per theater, as opposed to seven screenings per day per theater, we'll make a lot more money. So they cut the film so that it could be shown eight times instead of seven times. And some of the stuff that they cut, I was crazy about. I loved a scene that was cut. And I thought it was very important to show the breaking of the Al Pacino character's confidence and his defense mechanism against the world at large. I took great care to write that scene, and that scene was cut, and, I, and, it, and that scene was filmed by Jerry, by Gene, by Al, and it was cut by Warner Brothers. And I consider that to be one of the great crimes against the released movie. So somewhere in a vault is this additional footage that could be reinserted? Well, it's hard to say because film at that time was not the way film is now. It was degradable. And I would imagine that whatever film there was it has been destroyed by now by time. You know, now they digitalize everything and it's, so it's permanent. But that wasn't true in 73. So how many cuts of the movie did you see? I only saw the one cut that Jerry showed me in New York. And I was pleased, but I was also very disappointed in some of the decisions that had been made from the editing standpoint. Not from the performance. I thought the actors had captured the characters very, very well. And I thought that Jerry's work 
with the cinematographer was very good. I thought some of the shots were stunning. And I, and I remember him talking as we were driving across country about what some of the things he wanted to capture on film. And I thought that he did do that. But once again, uh, the continuity of the story, I've always felt, uh, suffered a blow because of the editing. So the cut version makes its way to U.S. theaters in April. Were you surprised as to how it wasn't as big a hit as it possibly could have been, considering the star talent? Um, That kind of goes into the center of who I am as well. I had written another screenplay, and I had written two plays that had been produced already. And all of my work prior to Scarecrow, and including Scarecrow, had a very deep, central, painful theme to them which are not particularly audience-friendly. And I didn't set out ever to be an audience pleaser. That was never my, my goal. My heroes on the screen and on the stage were all playwrights and, and directors that probed the painful, dark side of life. You know, films like Night of the Hunter. These were the things that guided and so I was not surprised that the public wasn't hugely warm about the film. I was surprised when I heard people say that it had a hopeless ending. Because as I pointed out, the last scene you see, last moment you see, is Max taking out his treasured stash of money and spending it on a round-trip ticket, which means he's going to come back and take care of his friend. And... That is made clear in the movie. He's pounding that shoe on the shelf. He is going to come back for his friend. And how anybody could interpret that as a hopeless ending is beyond my ability to understand. It can only be chalked up to lazy viewing, which is I've now come to expect from audiences, but I didn't then. It is a good punch of an ending, though, Gary. I don't think people prepared for it. For anybody who hasn't seen it, you have what is 90 minutes of fun, comedy, road trip, and then 10, 15 minutes of a, a real gut punch of an ending. Well, I was, I was different with you in a couple of instances. One, when they were in jail, the lion character gets beaten almost half to death. So it's not exactly fun then. And that's halfway through the film, or maybe even less than halfway. And then once he comes out of that jail, Lion is bruised, black and blue, through the rest of the movie. And when you see him in the bar, when he thinks he will try to stop Max from fighting yet again, and he chooses not to, Jerry was very careful in giving a close-up on Al to show that his spirit is not the way it was. He's been broken. One, by the beating he took in jail, and two, by the fact that he's getting closer and closer to facing the woman that he abandoned and the child that he abandoned. These are subterranean, but they are very present, and the music also takes a darker turn at that point. Then there is the big scene, of course, that was cut, which takes place in a train station where we, where I actually took the time to show Lion having his first breakdown and Max coming to his rescue. And that was cut from the film entirely. So the gut punch that you're talking about, look at it again and look at the care that was taken from the jail scene on to show the darkening of Lion's character. 
prior to his ultimate collapse. And then try to bear in mind the scene that was cut, which would really have prepared you for what was coming. Yeah, I, I'm disappointed to hear that that there was a first breakdown scene, and that would have given a much better overview as to what's happening at the end, as you described there. I think I was just constantly enjoying, well, not constantly, but you know, 90% of watching this movie is just enjoying it because of the interaction between Max and Lion. The, the first meeting of them two, they don't say anything because they're across the road from each other. And it's hilarious. It's so much fun. And how did you go about writing that scene? Pretty much just exactly as it's written. Here's what happened to me while I was hitchhiking in, in real life. I came to a crossroads and I was heading east towards Pennsylvania. And a very rough and gruff hobo type guy came up and stood in front of me so that he was facing traffic and it, and it would pass him before it got to me. And he simply hadn't seen me. So I said, excuse me, but I was here and I should be able to be first in line <laughs> for the traffic that's coming. Would you mind standing behind me? And he said, oh, sorry, mate, I didn't know you were there. And he walked across the road and headed east, or headed north, instead of east. It didn't make any difference to him which way he was going. So when I got to my next break, I wrote that note down in my notebook and saved it. I said, that's a real interesting character trait. So I wrote that into the script, into the screenplay. And then because of the way that Jeremy wanted to shoot it and where they shot it, there wasn't a crossroads available. So he had them standing across the, sh the road from each other instead. And then he had to find a way, the actors had to find a way to relate to each other, which was not, which is not easy to do, especially with a character like Max who wants nothing to do with anybody. So Al Pacino started working on his comedic bits to attract the attention of this stranger across the way. My idea was, of course, to share the, the light of his cigar. And that was the light that sparks their friendship. So otherwise, it was very much as I wrote it. But the great Bill Moshe Zygmunt, the cinematographer, colored that whole scene with that dark, grayish-purple feel. And it's just absolutely wonderful. It's beautifully shot. He really was. And he adds to this movie as well. I think that's the beauty of the landscape, is that you're constantly looking at the landscape. It's staying on the, the comedy aspect of it. When you saw Pacino and Hackman together when you were on set or when you saw the, the actual cut of the movie, were you surprised about how funny they could be together? Because before this, they were serious actors. And I can imagine nobody expected them to turn in comedic styles like they do in this. This is what drew both of them to the project. They both wanted to show that they could be other than they had been. My experience with actors had been on stage. And on stage, you're actors are taught to project the, the old cliche about you got the old lady in the back row of the theater has to hear you. And that's a big deal, projection. It is completely the opposite on a film set. So when the character, when Max and Lion are in that bar scene, the first one, where they meet Eileen Brennan, they were talking and I was behind the camera watching the scene being shot. I couldn't hear a word they said. They were speaking as film actors speak. When I saw the film later, I said, oh, they were being funny. 
<laughs> I had no idea when I watched the shooting that they were being fun at all. So I, I was completely bewildered. I wasn't worried. I was just, it was a new experience for me to watch actors performing words that I'd written and not being able to hear them. It was a whole new experience for me. I wanted to move forward to 1973 Cannes Film Festival, where the film ends up winning the highest prize, the Palme d'Or. It, it's a joint prize. Were you at the ceremony? No, I was not invited. Warner Brothers did not include the screenwriter. I can imagine that was quite frustrating after you heard that it had won. I was not surprised at all. You know, Jack Warner used to refer to screenwriters as schmucks with typewriters. The screenwriter has always been low man on the totem pole. That's what this strike is all about right now, by the way. Once again, the Writers Guild is saying, you can't treat us this way. You cannot cut us out of the streaming province. We're not going to let you do it. And, and it's a very strong union, as, as is being proved yet once again. So, no, I wasn't surprised that I wasn't invited. And I wasn't going to invite myself, so I didn't go. But you must have been pleased that it had won. It's a big prize, that is. I was over the moon. There's one thing I want to ask you, Gary, and this is something I interviewed uh, Jerry about this for my book, and I, I mentioned, I said, I think the film didn't find its audience in America because it is a look at the failed American dream. And he agreed with that. And I'm just wondering, from your writing perspective, would you say that is something as well? Uh, I'm always delighted when people find more dimension to what I've written than I did. <laughs> That's always exciting. But no, it never occurred to me that that was a theme in what I was writing. I went to a woman that I knew, and I said, you know, I've got a guy, I'm writing a story, and this guy is going across the country to face a child that he's never seen, a very young child. And I want him to be bringing this child a gift. And he doesn't know whether it's a boy or a girl. What would you suggest? And she said, what about a lamp? Wow, that's perfect. He carries a lamp. And that is funny. And it's mysterious. And, it, and that box gets older and dirtier and more beaten up as he gets nearer to his fearful goal. It worked on all kinds of levels. So my whole feeling about the theme of that story was a man who is violent and whose life has not ever really worked well for him comes into contact with a man who is afraid of the world and is about to go towards his destruction. And they bond enough that the violent man can pick up the wounded man when he's beaten to the ground and help save him. That is the story. That's it. I had no wider view of the United States of America being anything except a big place to cross to get where they had to go. That's the best answer I'd give you on that one. It just boggles my mind that this film didn't find its audience, but thankfully is continuing to find an audience. More and more people are finding it. Unfortunately, it's not shown on TV anywhere near as much. Gene Hackman, I don't know if you're aware of this, Gary, but Gene Hackman rates this as the best film he's been involved in. He has said that continually all his career, and I am so grateful to him for that. I really am. He, he doesn't have to go out on the limb the way he does, and he, and he means it. So that, that film is the one that speaks to me deepest, and uh, I think it's just wonderful. When you think of the 
amazing work that Gene Hackman has, has done. Oh my God! You know, for him to erase Scarecrow at the top of the list is, is boggles my mind. It, it really does. And for me, I would say top five Pacino performances because it's something completely different at a time where he was just coming through and it showed his comedic chops. Yeah, and it shows the gentle side to him, which he did not show in Panic in Needle Park, and he certainly could not show in The Godfather. And nor did he in Serpico or, or any of his other great roles in the Dog Day Afternoon. No, there was no gentleness to any of those characters. And yet Lion is the most gentle man. I mean, most guys, you know, a lot of guys would say, okay, so I walked out, get over it, grow up, you know, whatever guys would say. But Lion can't do that. He's cursed with a true conscience. And he says, I got scared and I've got to face what I've done. And she doesn't understand that, his wife. She doesn't understand bravery that he's had to bring forward to make that call to her and to come back. And so she attacks him with all of her pent-up rage. And that, of course, is the very thing. He can't make her laugh. He can't get through to her with his usual shtick and make it go away. And it breaks him. And Pacino understood that. So he was willing to play a scared, gentle man with a defense mechanism, which is entertaining to the audience. At such a young age as well. Yeah, he was like 31 years old, I think. I have one last question for you, Gary. And because we're talking about Pacino, I want to ask you your favorite Al Pacino movie. I think what he did in The Godfather is extraordinary. I, I have to say, not the third one, but the two films, and even in the third one, the arc that he describes with that character from the beginning at the wedding of his sister through the killing of his brother. You know, what an arc that is. This was found by Coppola and by Al Pacino. I'm almost positive that you would find them as being the author of that arc. And I have to think that that is truly one of the great uh, cinema achievements of American film. I can't imagine how he made that transition from this war hero, tousled haired boy to the man who kills his brother and watches it from a window. That's Shakespearean, isn't it? It really is. That's Prince Hal becoming Henry V. Gary Michael White talking about Scarecrow there. It was nice to hear that Pacino stuck up for White's original script and didn't allow the studio heads to rewrite it. I think it shows how connected Pacino was to the writing. And also how much power he had at such a young age. And this was before The Godfather had even been released. For my money, Scarecrow is a wonderful film. Hackman is hugely entertaining and Pacino is slightly goofy. They make a really entertaining duo in a buddy road trip movie that's heartfelt and funny. It's just a shame it's so overlooked. My thanks to Gary for coming on the podcast. Also, my thanks to John Griff for helping with the audio production on this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any feedback, then please do get in touch. You can find me on X, aka Twitter, on Instagram and on Blue Sky, or you can contact me via my website, MarkSearby.com. If you enjoyed this episode, then please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all future episodes. Until next time.